conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Welcome to a very special episode of Genre Vision or Welcome to Geekdom, depending on which one you're listening to. If you're listening to Genre Vision, we're being joined by our good friend, Deanna Chapman. Deanna Chapman, say hi to everybody. Hello, and if you are Welcome to Geekdom listeners, you are listening to me with Drew Deach and Travis Newton. So guys, say hello to my listeners now. Heyo. Hi, everyone. Yeah, we're doing a fun joint episode for Spooky Season. Travis and I have guested on Welcome to Geekdom and your other podcast, Chat Cemetery, and we wanted to do something fun for Halloween, and we decided to do this joint episode, and, and on Genre Vision, we're doing a whole month of haunted media movies. You happen to join us for this one on Stay Alive, the evil video game movie. Yeah. Which we're going to, yeah, we're going to talk about. Uh, we'll see how much we have to say about Stay Alive, but before we do that, just a couple quick calls to action. As we often do in Calls to Action, we're asking you to review and rate Genre Vision on the Apple Podcast Store. But since we have Deanna here this week, we're also asking that you go check out Welcome to Geekdom and Chat Cemetery and go rate and review her podcasts on the Apple Podcast Store. The other thing that you can do for the shows that would be a huge favor is check us out on Patreon. If you'd like to check out what we offer on Patreon, which includes weekly pre-shows and monthly currently consuming episodes and all sorts of other assorted goodies, go to patreon.com slash genrevision. Deanna, if people want to check out your Patreon page, what is the URL? It is patreon.com slash Deanna Chapman. I do not have as fancy of a name as you guys do because I was like, well, I got Welcome to Geekdom and I got Chat Cemetery, but I don't have like one umbrella for everything. So I was like, my name it is. That's fancy enough for me. <laughs> Makes you easy to find. <laughs> so uh, speaking of fancy, there's a very unfancy movie on the on the docket today. <laughs> and I have to lay this one at Drew's feet. Drew was the one that said, hey, guys. It's Haunted Media Month. We're definitely doing Stay Alive. Like, this was his gimme. This is, yeah, this is, I, I take full responsibility for subjecting us all. Now, now granted, when when Travis and I guested on Welcome to Geekdom, Deanna subjected us to to the movie The Mangler 2. Chat Cemetery. Oh, that was on Chat Cemetery. I'm sorry. No, who geeks out about Mangler 2? Honestly. Well, <laughs> we, we did our best, but... Deanna, I know you said that you owe us one after subjecting us to the Bangler 2. I did. I did. But I, I did not do this intentionally. This was not <laughs> this was not retribution, I swear. I think this hurt you guys more than it hurt me, well, though. <laughs> there you go. But it, like this movie had been sitting around for long enough. I feel like I think it was worth giving it another shot to be like, is there anything here? Because this came out in a time where horror was uh, in, in an interesting phase, there was a lot of kind of weak sauce PG-13 horror that was making its way to the cinemas, and it all had kind of a similar feeling. Like, the, the, the popular movies at the time were like Final Destination and The Ring. Oh, boy. Those were the kind of huge movies in cinemas. Obviously, Final Destination was not a PG-13 release, but Stay Alive is kind of an odd hybrid between The Ring and Final Destination. Those wound up as an interesting hybrid, and this is kind of the result. I could see that because it was something that was trying to have, you know, creepy things crawling around in the shadows and you had some very gory deaths, which is the staple of Final Destination, all 800 of them. <laughs> it's definitely a relic in, in a lot of ways. And I think we'll we'll highlight that as we talk about the movie. But 
it was a movie that was kind of from the get-go from what I remember when it was releasing, it was such a joke. It was like, this is the evil haunted video games movie. And I assumed that it's like, well, that is ridiculous and silly. But then upon researching and looking it up and remembering things about it, I was like, there there are a lot of notable actors in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the people behind the camera have gone on to to have success in the same genre. Maybe there was something in Stay Alive that merited rediscovery and reappraisal. Uh, whoops. <laughs> hey, it was worth a shot, bud. And I'll give you that. But, um, you know, coming out in 2006, what was happening in the video game world at the time, there had just been, you know, we were early in, an, in a new generation of consoles. So that was PS3 and Xbox 360. And there was this sort of leap forward in gaming technology at the time, And then was a great time to capitalize on that. But trying to make a movie about video game culture and like the kinds of people that play video games, it's such a, I mean, obviously video games are massively popular, but like gamer culture, quote unquote, is such a niche thing. And to try to bring that into like a popular movie, it was like a recipe for like pure cringe. It, uh, it is a strange, strange melange. For me, what was most interesting was simply the concept of if you die in the video game, you die in real life. I think that's something that could work really well as a horror movie premise. It's just a matter of executing it in a way that makes more sense. I know you guys had some questions before we even started talking here, and (laughs) I was trying to give you answers, and you were like, oh... (laughs) Okay, because it's like they didn't do a very good job of explaining things. Well, I mean, the the big tagline for the movie that you see on nearly all of the posters, like that that poster with the, the game controller and the two hands sort of hanging from it became, I don't know, easily spoofed, but certainly well remembered. But you die in the game, you die for real is the big tagline. Like that was some sort of big concept that viewers had to grasp. It's like, no, we've we've all seen the Matrix at this point. Mm-hmm. If you die in the Matrix, you die for real. Your mind makes it real. <laughs> Don't worry about it. That's how the Matrix works. We've seen three of these things by this point. Well, and I I specifically remember the trailer for this movie. A, a character screams that line: "If you die in the game, you die for real." In the actual movie, they cut the line, which uh, also reminds me of the same thing they did with Freddy versus Jason in which they cut the best line, which is Freddy versus Jason, place your bets. <laughs> yeah, that that's a it's a great trailer line, but often they they come off as like really corny in movies. I sure. remember watching Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark and there is the incredibly stupid line, you don't read the book, the book reads you. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I hope they cut that from the movie, they probably will because it's a silly trailer line that just helps people <laughs> grasp the concept. Mm-hmm. But when that played in the theater, it was like me and six teenagers in the theater when I saw that and they all laughed. But this this movie is kind of full of stuff like that. Well, yeah, I mean, we could we could spend the entire episode just talking about the dialogue from Stay Alive. Sure. But like, what's it about? What's the movie? about? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you die in the game, you die for real. That's that's basically it. But the opening sets up I, like it sets up the premise. I'll give the movie this. The opening sets up the premise. We have. This spooky video game that's being played, it's revealed that it's being played by um, Milo Ventimiglia. Playing a character named Loomis. Yeah. Loomis lives in this house in, you know, somewhere on the outskirts of New Orleans. And after he finishes playing the game and sees his character die by 
um, being hanged by a chain um, over a stairwell. He goes and he makes some really odd acting choices in the very few minutes of screen time he has, like some really strange facial expressions. He gets on the phone to his buddy, um, played by Ben Foster's brother, oddly enough, uh, who's the main character in the movie. But he's like, hey, man, you going to play play this video game with me? And uh, and Ben Foster's brother, character, what's his name? What is his name? John. What's the character's oh, name? Though? Oh, the character's name. Hutch. <laughs> so Fletch, uh, <laughs> he, he gets off the phone with Hutch. And then there's the first attempt at like a scare scene in real life where Mila Ventimiglia's character is suddenly spooked by something. We don't know what. And then he just randomly opens a door to find two of his friends uh, cavorting in bed. <laughs> One of them is wearing a pig mask. Um, I don't know if this is this movie's attempt at a joke, but these characters, they all die that night. You know, Mila Ventimiglia dies in the same way that his character in the game died, you know, being hanged by a chain. But this is, again, like the movie kind of sets up a bunch of blind alleys for it to stumble into. It's like, what is the what is the significance of this? It's a very abrupt opening, too, because you're kind of like, OK, we get the idea that he wants to play this game with his friend. And it's kind of like a beta version of the game. Mm-hmm. It's not even actually out yet. Right. And you would think they're kind of trying to work out some of the last minute bugs or whatever, but you never really see anything like that. It's just like, oh, okay, later on in the movie, we're going to try and find the video game developer because <laughs> why didn't you think of that sooner? Yeah. Okay. Uh, how they find the video game developer, I'll never know, but we'll get oh, there. Oh, we're going to, we'll try. I, th- I, I thought for sure that the video game graphics would look really terrible. Like we all watched the unrated director's cut, uh, which was released on DVD back in, I don't know, whatever, 06 or 07. But the copy of the, of it that we found was in standard death, you know, not in great shape. I don't think they've updated that cut to HD. And I thought for sure, like in high def, all the video game graphic stuff would just look awful. Turns out in high def, it actually, it, it looks okay. And like the movie cinematographically doesn't look terrible. No. It's I, not lit poorly. I mean, it's it's dark. It's 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 a very dark movie. But like in high def, I, I rented the theatrical version to see how it looked in high def. And it's like, well, when there's more detail, there's more detail in the shadows. So it's a, it's a decent looking movie, particularly for it's like really low budget. I think the budget is estimated at seven mil. Okay. I mean, here's the thing. Looking back, this pre-credits sequence, I think, kind of serves as as pretty much a capsule of what you're going to get. Because my biggest issue with Stay Alive, the one that I think is just, there's stuff in here that we can definitely kind of poke fun at and ask questions about. But I think the thing that kills this movie, especially as a horror movie, is the edit. The and and in this opening. All of these gags, scare gags, which we've all, you know, seen a ton of times Mm -hmm. and we know how they can get pulled off. And even if they aren't necessarily fully successful, there's still a particular rhythm to how you execute this stuff. And Stay Alive across the board has one of the most befuddling edits that I have seen in a long time where there, there is... No sense of good, like, rhythm or flow to particularly the scare scenes, but in general, just how the story and characters are are interacting and how the movie is pacing itself. I, I know at one point uh, when Travis and I were doing our screening, I, I messaged him was like, we're 40 minutes into this movie. It feels like it's been going on for 15 minutes. Everything is so 
rapidly cut together and paced in the dialogue and in the edit that it it's it is so strange to me. Yeah, and to think like watching that edit, I was like, this this was the cut the director preferred. Like, yikes! And the theatrical cut is cut even more strangely because they keep having to cut around R-rated gags and trim things to, down to like four or five frames to avoid getting that R rating. So it's real strange. But you know, like there's a moment where Mila Ventimiglia's character is just walking down the stairs, and then suddenly. The movie cuts to like a few frames of like a shrieking video game face. And I'm like, what, what is that? Like, what are we seeing? Where is it in relation to what we were seeing before? Like, what is the motivation like behind the cut? It's just, yeah, it's a total mess when it comes to editing. Editing can definitely kill a movie too, because I don't know if either of you have seen Hungry Wives, which is now billed as Season of the Witch by George Romero. No, I've never seen that one. No, I've not. I watched it recently, and because of the editing in it, I absolutely did not like the movie at all. Surprisingly, I liked this more than I liked that, which I felt bad because I was like, <laughs> this is a Romero movie. I feel like I should like it more. But I gave this credit for the premise, even though the execution was off. The editing was obviously off. But one of the things I really liked about this were the set pieces. Well, okay, I, I will... If we're going to be positive. I try to do that. <laughs> I, I mean, and thank you, Dan, because you're definitely the one of us who, who enjoyed this the most. I will say this. The premise is good. Like the the idea, so it's like you die in the game, you die for real. Cool. There is definitely a good movie you could make out of that. And looking at the the overall movie and what it wanted to do, which is that, oh, there's this evil spooky video game. That if you play it, you're going to get killed the way you get killed in the game. And actually, the game itself is going to show you how you're going to eventually have to, you know, survive a trial later on in the real world. And now the game is leaking out into the real world. I even said that there's a point during a character's death where I said to Travis, like, this is the first time that this premise is coming across as interesting mm -hmm. is when the, the elements of the game, which is like this old timey you know, atmosphere and everything are leaking out into reality. It's like, okay, that is a good idea and a fun one. Yeah, there's a there's a fine premise at the core of this movie, but like all the things that surround the premise, like, okay, what kind of characters are we going to have in the movie to kind of drive this thing forward? Uh, what kind of mythology and lore are we going to use to kind of tell this story? Like all of those other elements surrounding the premise are like rotten to me. Can we please attempt to talk about our ensemble of characters and stay alive. Sure. You've got Hutch, who's played by Ben Foster's brother. Evidently, Ben Foster got this role and then was like, uh, I'm going <laughs> to give it to my brother. Um, I'm not kidding. That's that's in the IMDb yeah. trivia, so you know it's true. Uh, Hutch gets... So you've got Hutch. His buddy Loomis died. So he goes to Loomis's funeral where he meets a young blonde woman named Abigail, Abigail. And she says she's from Georgia and that she's going to Princeton in the fall. Sure thing. All lies. Uh, she also has a very old timey camera. Yes. Which which we were certain was going to be some kind of plot point. Apparently it is just to reference the game Fatal Frame, which they name drop in the opening. And I mean, there's a point where they when they when all our ensemble play the spooky game for the first time she takes a picture of all of them with this old-timey camera and you're like look I've seen a thousand horror movies <laughs> I know that that picture is going to have something spooky in it like some clue 
or something. Never, like nothing. No, nothing. And I, I thought for sure, like when they showed us a, a prop that specific, we're like, ah, that's coming back for something. Never does. But also, like this movie is operating on the level where Abigail sticks this giant old timey camera in Hutch's face, <laughs> and it goes click, and he looks at her and goes, "Did you just take my picture?" <laughs> What do you think, jerk face? What do you think she just did? <laughs> so, so yes, they, they, they meet at this funeral for Loomis. Uh, I guess then they pal over to the coffee, a coffee shop where we meet. Well, they, they get the game given to them at the funeral. His Hutch is like, oh, no, what's his name? Loomis's little sister gives them the video game. Yeah. That's right. That's right. She ha- he, she's like, this is my brother's satchel. Take my brother's purse. <laughs> Yes, and, and and has the game. So it's like they go over to this coffee shop where we meet October, uh, who's played by Sophia Bush, who is somehow not Parker Posey. <laughs> and also Phineas, who I swear, I don't know if his name was ever said in the cut that we watch, but fine. His name's Phineas. They called him Finn a lot, I think. Oh, okay. Deanna, why don't you take the wheel on Phineas and October? <laughs> So it seems like they kind of run this cafe, or at least they're the only two who work there and nobody else is ever there. But <laughs> I mean, that I don't remember seeing anyone and their brother and sister, from what I understood. Yes. Although their relationship on screen is a little stranger. Yes, it certainly is. And yeah. one, seeing Sophia Bush with jet black hair in the midst of One Tree Hill airing is very strange it threw me off because i was like this is a choice to make while you're in the middle of like this big tv show that you're doing but that aside you have the two of them and phineas is obviously the bigger gamer out of everyone (laughs) aside from maybe swink sure uh swink is played by frankie muniz speaking of big tv shows frankie muniz had just gotten off malcolm in the middle how do we know that Phineas, played by the wonderful Jimmy Simpson, how do we know he's a big gamer, though? Hmm? You know, <laughs> he might be a little obsessed. Uh, I, I think it is fair to, I mean, Jimmy Simpson, who has gone on to be a well-regarded character actor and uh, a, a great comedic presence yes. in, in shows like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, is playing what has to be one of the most aggressively abrasive gamer stereotype characters I've ever seen in a movie. Mm-hmm. That and Joel David Moore's character in Shark Knight. And you said, you're like, I think this movie is written by Joel David Moore's character in Shark Knight. And I'm like, that's <laughs> it exactly. That, that is such a deep, deep cut reference that only like three people would get, but I stand by it. Like, <laughs> um, Phineas is just like, it is a testament to Jimmy Simpson's talent that he survived this role. <laughs> it is incredible the things I pray that they were making him say. I pray that that was not improv by by Mr. Simpson. I don't know. So much um, of it is like really close to his McPoyle character on on Always Sunny. He I yeah, he's 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 got just like that level of grease on him yes. throughout the whole movie. It's like wife beater, like ha- grease, silly hat. Yep. Is it his apartment that they all go to to play the game that has the ridiculously huge steam boy poster no that's hutch's apartment yeah i thought it was hutch's because okay so I, he loves steam boy yeah i made a note too i was like how is it that people in movies always have like the most spacious apartments 
it's odd because like you go into Hutch's living room and it's like this huge steam boy art in the background and with this like really big beaded curtain and stuff like that. And then the, the way that they introduce you to this apartment set is they cut to him in his teeny tiny little kitchen. And what's he doing in his teeny tiny little kitchen? Uh, just washing solo cups, <laughs> red plastic solo cups, just washing them. Yep. What? Why? Has anyone in the history of humanity washed like i know they make those like those actual like permanent solo cups sure. that you can keep but these these are not them they can't be them i refuse to believe they're them these are just regular plastic solo cups and he is washing them and what's crazy about this is it, they get a close up yeah the, the solo cups get like their own extreme close up while he's watching them for no reason what is this information <laughs> yep. giving us nothing <laughs> so hutch has a job too like he works at some business, business, business office in a high rise somewhere in New Orleans. And his boss is Adam Goldberg. Yeah. Who's also another annoying <laughs> gamer. <laughs> we were talking. So, so yeah, his boss is Adam Goldberg. And there's this scene where, you know, Hutch comes in and we think that it's supposed to be this like, Hey, you know, you didn't get me the report scene, you know, that, you know, boss employee stock scene. But then it is revealed that no, Adam Goldberg, uh, whose who's, who's character name is Miller, Miller Banks, uh, is like, no, I'm trying to talk to you about how to help me beat Silent Hill 4. <laughs> and and in this, he's like, Hutch is like, oh, well, did you get the hyper blaster? And this was the moment where I had to throw my arms up and be like, you're doing the video game horny, which, by the way, this is like... There's tie-ins to legitimate video game stuff here. There's a there's a Game Informer magazine at the end. They obviously, I'm sure, had to clear, um, you know, place it. There's a lighter that has the PlayStation, you know, button symbols etched into it. Uh, in a flashback, we see a burning Nintendo Entertainment System. This this was legitimately trying to be the gamer horror movie. And in this, they're talking about a game, Silent Hill Four. And using a hyper blaster in it. I, I don't think any of those first Silent Hill games had any kind of weapon other than a melee weapon. There is no hyper blaster. Yeah, it's such a bland way to talk about the game. Did you use the hyper blaster to defeat the final boss? <laughs> what are you talking about? It just sounds like it was written by like 50 year old men who don't understand what video games are. That, that's not the case, obviously, but this keeps happening throughout the movie. And I know it's this is a nitpick. I recognize this as a nitpick. It is like a super dorky nitpick thing. But I think when you're clearly trying, like this movie has a video game consultant in the end credits that gets, you know, a solo type who even goes, you know, by their basically avatar name, Cliffy B. To put those kind of things into this game only is going, or into this movie rather, is only going to highlight the fact that it seems like you're, you're, you're being a phony. You don't actually know what you're talking about. But again, that is a nitpick, and I recognize that. And that is by far the least of the list of problems that that I think is, are going on in Stay Alive. So Have we talked about the scene where Hutch has to bring, uh, what's her name, a roll of toilet paper because she's on the crapper? <laughs> so awkward. <laughs> which, which is like, okay, I, I get it. I get what they're trying to – there's so much of this movie where I was like, I get what you're trying to do. Like, its intentions are not unclear. Like, I get what it's trying to do in so many scenes, but it is just magically failing at them. Like, that is supposed to be another kind of meet-cute type of thing. 
Like, oh, yeah, you know, you gotta give you toilet paper, and isn't this awkward? <laughs> We're gonna fall in love. What? Spoiler alert, they don't. I guess. I mean, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Then they have that scene with her later where she's doing the he loves me, he loves me not thing. I'm just like, are we in high school? Like, what? what? Uh, Fast forward. Waste of the rose. And roses are an important um, resource in in this in this gaming world, evidently. Yeah. Well, because they finally they 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 all pop in the game. Somehow they're all playing together, including uh through an internet connection with Adam Goldberg's character. None of this makes any physical logical sense, but that, that that's fine. That's fine. I can, I can forgive that. It's a supernatural game in the cloud, baby. Yep. So they, they have to, they start the game up and they have to actually read this spooky diary text from Elizabeth Bathory. And they have to say it out loud. And as they say it, the words on the screen disappear. And of course this is the incantation to get things going on. It's like, okay, you know, this is, we're going to talk about Evil Dead later this month. This is the Evil Dead moment. You got to read from the Necronomicon or play the tape that reads from the Necronomicon. That's fine. That's fine. Sure. Deanna, are you familiar with Elizabeth Bathory? No. Okay. Hungarian countess, real person, mid 1500s to like early 1600s. She was, according to what we know, one of the most prolific female murderers in history. Okay. So there's a lot of lore out there about Elizabeth Bathory. So this movie says, all right, Elizabeth Bathory was not Elizabeth Bathory. What she actually was, was the headmistress of a finishing school in New Orleans around uh, the early 1800s. Why they had to make that Elizabeth Bathory, I have no idea. It could, can I say the F-bomb on your show, Deanna? Yes. It could have been fucking anybody dracula whoever uh, elizabeth ba- why make such a specific poll if you're just gonna make her the headmistress of a fucking finishing school in the early 1800s in louisiana how oddly specific it's these kind of decisions that that are just like i again i see what you're going for you want to have a spooky central figure you want to make your mythic figure to this thing but to to pull that specific thing and then and then contradict all this historical stuff again i can roll with that in a way but at the same time it 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 just asks more questions where it's like why why was that the thing you decided to lock in on um so they play the game the first time and adam goldberg's character is the first one to die and he's playing in his at his work office remotely and he gets uh he gets his character gets stabbed with some shears through the through the neck and then all of a sudden, spooky stuff's happening. And then we got to talk about the the spooky rumble sound. Yeah, there's like a telltale rumble. This is this movie's equivalent of the Jaws theme, in which the spooky rumble starts happening. You're like, oh, the ghost is coming. And I think at first we don't know that it's a rumble, but eventually it's revealed that it's the rumble on the controller. Well, I mean, it's obscenely farty. <laughs> it's characters wandering, wandering around in dark spaces. And then all of a sudden on the score, there'll be... You're being a little cruel to it, but you're not totally off. There's a big like bass hit with it too. So I'm like, is <laughs> did my subwoofer blow out? Like, did I did I rip my cone on my subwoofer or whatever? And no, that's just what they thought was the appropriate sound for this. It's it's you know it's it's elements like this that makes me like question how sincere was any of this in the making? Like, was it ever trying to be sincerely scary? Is it a horror comedy? Like there's a weird sort of mismatch of tonal intention. Like what, what did you intend 
that people get out of this movie. Like I understand like for, for a horror movie that should be fairly easy to parse. You want kids to have a good time in the theater. I get it. Let, let me let me let me pose this question to you, Deanna, because out, out of the three of us, you definitely enjoyed this the most. And and there was there was a point in Travis and I's sync watch of it where I I I I messaged him this sentiment where I was like, was this movie a prank? Like, what was was this like a, a joke that was being pulled on? I don't know the audience, the people making the it? studio. <laughs> yeah, like, but but uh, were were there moments in the movie from your perspective, Deanna? where there was effective horror going on. That's tough because <laughs> as you both know, I've seen many bad Stephen King adaptations. True. And I think the only horror element that this really nails is sort of the spooky haunted house cemetery vibe. I mean, the set the set dressing is all there for it in the third act. I'll give you that. Well, there's there and there's good location shooting and stuff. It, it should be noted this was actually the the last uh, professional production to shoot in Louisiana before Hurricane Katrina. Oh happened. yeah, yeah. It's also a, a, a Disney movie. Oddly enough, it's a Hollywood picture. So it is. Yeah. Um, I I think they do make good use of the locations. You know, the kind of spooky Spanish moss hanging from the trees. You know, the shooting in the cemetery and things like that. Yeah, the plantation and everything. It, it's good locations. I will absolutely give it. And that. in particular, the scene where. Abigail is going through the house and she's going through it by herself. And you know, something's coming because Swink is navigating Hutch through a different part of the house. So you're kind of <laughs> these character names. Yeah. I'm sorry. Deanna, go on. Did I mess up their names? No, it's just their bad names. Oh, their okay. names are Swink and Hutch and Phineas and October. Uh, <laughs> Abigail is like no. the only normal name. So, so you're saying when you're, you're talking about kind of the, uh, specifically the climax of when she's going through the house or when, or when they're going through the house and they meet the, um, the, the, the fish person game developer guy. When they're at the house that is in the game, the garouge plantation. Oh yes, yes, yes. And she, like she sees like the, the cabinet and she's like, it's just like in the game. Yeah. I would say when she goes through the cabinet and finds that room, that is probably the peak horror segment in this because you have her captured basically and it's not an instant kill like we tend to see with everyone else it's a little more drawn out and you're like okay oh you know what this sequence is like derived from is the remake of texas chainsaw massacre oh yeah that's true i was thinking about a uh, hostile part two mm. which has a direct elizabeth bathory scene that this kind of echoes but this was before hostile too it was yes but yeah that that scene deanna i I think it does have like an effective set like it's a nice location there are some like odd shots of like hey it's a doll's face with maggots in the eyes for right some reason (laughs) it's just you know spooky set dressing of just stuff around and i think that works because it seems like it can only kill one person at a time maybe (laughs) so You have three of them, and they're kind of all in different locations, but they're in the same general vicinity. And so when it grabs Abigail, you see more than one ghost or whatever, because when Hutch comes in and uses the rose, two ghosts disappear. I think this is a good jumping off point for a topic of conversation. And and an issue that came up during Travis and I's screening is the idea of rules in horror. Like rules are often a thing that not just in horror, but in a lot of storytelling, but I think particularly in horror that help audiences 
grasp a story's intentions and goals and motivations and everything is you got to have rules. And there are, there are instances where you can throw that out the window. And the, the, the example that I brought up was that you look at a character like Pennywise. Mm-hmm. Pennywise can kind of do whatever he wants depending on the particular scene. Right. Like his powers are seemingly limitless, but at the same time, he seems to conform to his own kind of whims and desires. And clearly in different movie adaptations and in the novel, that has worked and has been utilized in, in ways that have amplified the horror that that story that that story is going for. Sure, but like regardless of rules, if everything else is working in the movie like as it should be, then people don't usually care about that stuff. Like right. it follows exactly. It follows is writing its own rules constantly, like writing and rewriting, like defining the lore of whatever this monster is. And I, I know, like even Quentin Tarantino took issue with that, but I was like, as long as the movie is doing what it's supposed to do, otherwise. I rarely ever care about that sort of stuff. Right. I, I And I think that's like, because at a certain point in this uh, swink, Frankie Munez's character just has a revelation of like, one of us has to keep playing the game. And th- the, the, the reason that I take issue with this kind of stuff is it all just kind of sprouts out of nothingness. There, there's never a strong, convincing, motivating factor to the revelations or or discoveries that the characters make. Like earlier, the character of October, we cut to a scene and I, I guess she's in her apartment or I don't know. Um, and she's just suddenly like, hey, I, I have this book and it's going to just instantly tell us all the stuff that we have to do. And, and it's like... Okay, I mean, all right. I mean, I've I've seen that scene in a bunch of other horror movies, but usually, you know, I see you going to the library with the intention of finding something that will help you out. Mm-hmm. It's a stock scene. Sure, there are like clear goals that a movie can set up and be like, we're going to this place to do this thing. And, you know, there's either an unexpected result or an expected result. But it's things like um, they go to uh, Loomis's house to find out where the developer for Stay Alive lives. Why that information would be at Loomis's house, I haven't the foggiest fucking clue. Are they looking for the male because he's the one who got the game initially? I don't really know. Maybe they could be thumbing through the guy's Rolodex. Yeah. Who knows? The point is like the movie just says like, oh yeah, we found it. So now we're on the way out to like the developer's house, which is evidently the plantation that all this stuff went down. Sure. Yeah, the, which was the finishing school that Elizabeth Bathory set up in the early 1800s in Louisiana. Uh, what? Right. And they visit Alice Krieg at one point. I, I was just going to bring that up. When that happens, I don't know. Before we get into that, though, I want to make a quick note about the book that October has. Because when they're sitting on the couch playing the game, she kind of has them pause. And I think it's when they have kind of read what's on the screen, but not all of them chanting it at the same time. She makes some sort of comment about something sounding familiar. And I could have sworn she said that her and Phineas's grandmother had told them this story. So I'm wondering if maybe the book belonged to the grandmother and it was just something she had. That's the only like, other than going to the library, logical sort of 
through line there. Maybe. But like one of, one of the biggest issues that I have with this movie, and this is a problem with editing, it's a problem with writing, and it's a general problem with like direction. It's like it, it's a poor visual language. When you deliver information in a movie, you have to give the audience some kind of idea of the weight and the importance of that information, even if it's subconsciously trying to suggest that this is important information. Because it's things like, the movie decides to give an extreme close-up on the solo cups that Hutch is watching. Why? It's not important. Or when Frankie Muniz's character is Googling perceptive reality and there's an extreme close-up on the words perceptive reality that fill the entire frame. Is perceptive reality important to the function of the movie? Absolutely not. So it's things like that where the movie decides we're going to give you this piece of information and we're not going to give you any proper context clues as to how important it is. Right. So it's a mess. I definitely think that's a, a, a very good criticism and observation of the movie o- overall. And and to, to Deanna, as you were talking about Alice Krieg popping up, uh, and, you know, a, a good callback to our Sleepwalkers episode of Chat Cemetery. Go listen to that. Yes. I mean, Alice Krieg is a treasure. I, I adore seeing her in pretty much anything. But the way that the movie gets to her, and I mean this again, like you're talking about, Travis, in the film language of the movie, it is like the characters teleported to her. Yeah. Where it's just like, boom, and now they're here with this person that I guess is integral to the plot. And who, I mean, she in the credits, she is just credited as the author. Deanna, help. Like, what was she the author of? I believe she was the author of the book that the game was based on. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll buy that for a dollar. Um, <laughs> but the, in, in the language of the movie, there are multiple times where the, can, where, where the movie does an, an infeasible fade to black. And it is so bizarre and off-putting. And again, and this is part of that weird rhythm but it's not like a slow, deliberate fade to black. It's like, we'll suddenly just fade and then come up somewhere else. Or like there'll be an odd dissolve. It's like so without rhythm and the scene transitions are so poorly handled. It's so arrhythmic. Like it's bizarre. So then all of a sudden, Hutch and Abigail are just at Alice Krieg's house and she is putting on a one of the best things about the movie, which is her accent. <laughs> it is a mystery. Yes. Like she, she sounds like a character, that character from an American tale, which is like, we waste a secret weapon. <laughs> and, and, but it's fine. Cause it's Alice Creek and she's, she's a treasure. Um, and I wish she was in more of the movie, <laughs> but so, so all of the, all of this is happening. And, and after a certain point, the movie defeated me, which is pretty rare for me. Like, I don't often find myself giving up on a movie and just kind of being like, all right, just I'm I'm I don't know what's going on anymore. And I'm just going to roll with what's going on. And maybe there will be something of note here. But by the time the movie gets to its its climax and it is they have to go to the plantation and they have to apparently I'm doing this straight from memory. So I'm trying my best here. They have to go to the plantation to find the body of Elizabeth Bathory. Mm-hmm. They got to put three nails in her. They got to put three nails in her. <laughs> there's something else that they have to do, and then they have to burn her body. Like, there's there's something else, right? Deanna, is there something else besides the three nails? I'm not 100% sure, because I remember the nails, and I remember that not working. <laughs> there is a, a detail early on, like mirrors keep shattering whenever there's a Bathory moment. 
And there's a moment in the game early on where Jimmy Simpson's character is like, oh, that one mirror didn't shatter because I think it was a mirror of polished silver. And like the final thing that actually manages to kill the Elizabeth Bathory vampire ghost, whatever she is, is. Oh, the mirror. Yeah. Hutch picks up an Alienware laptop. (laughs) Yeah, not really a mirror. (laughs) With a mirror chrome finish on the back of the screen. And he holds it up and he kills her with her own laptop reflection. (laughs) So I, I, I think the moment, you know, that Drew was describing earlier where he just totally gave up was after the Alice Krieg scene, there's a, a montage. And like you said, it's like one of the most arrhythmic, like we're going here, we're doing this. And the the pacing of it just felt so off that I think we had to just accept that this wasn't going to make any sense to us. At least, I'm just speaking <laughs> for Drew and myself at this point. Mm-hmm. But just this past week, we talked about two Italian horror movies, Demons and Demons 2. And they're both like totally nonsensical. They're movies that just like, Hey, don't worry about it. Just go along with it. Like, have you seen much Italian horror, Deanna? No. Okay. So there's this, a lot of Italian, like it's particularly supernatural Italian horror movies are like, just flow with it. They're nonsensical. They're, they just do whatever they want. Like, have you seen Suspiria, the original Suspiria? It's on my list. I have not yet. Hopefully this month. It's like a fever dream. Like the movie just kind of goes and does whatever it wants to do at any given moment, but it somehow manages to catch you up in its spell. And what this movie does that I think prevents people from getting caught up in its spell is it lacks enough of a a stylistic statement to sort of get you wrapped up in it. Like if if it had had a really tight edit that like really pulled you in and like had a really compelling aspect to it like that, like I would be so much more forgiving of the sort of like nonsensical nature of it. But I think the sheer technical ineptitude matched with its nonsensicalness is like, I, I, I can't I can't do anything with this. What is this? I, I want to throw the baton to you, Deanna, because I, I, I definitely think I'm, I'm at a, a point where I can make my final summations. But as the person that at, at this point, you're 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 the one going the most to bat for stay alive. What would you say is kind of your 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 overall summary of the movie? And would you. Would you recommend it at all? I would not recommend it to anyone who (laughs) likes watching good horror movies, because this is not that by any stretch of the imagination. I think just because I have been watching so many Stephen King adaptations that fall in this sort of two-star range for me, this felt like something along those lines. Did we need it? Not necessarily. Is it something that I think someone else could take the premise and do better? Yes. And I think that's what stuck with me the most. Because when we see video game movies, typically we're talking about video games that have been adapted into movies. Something like Resident Evil movies, Detective Pikachu even, Sonic the Hedgehog, that are telling their own stories that maybe pull from some of the video game lore. But this is about a video game that is essentially haunting people in real life. And I really think that premise is something that gives you a lot to work with in many different ways. It doesn't have to be this countess and a haunted house kind of thing. It could be so many different things. You know, you have things like The Walking Dead that exist, which you could easily imagine The Walking Dead as a video game. I don't know if if it ever got a video game release or anything like that, but... several. But I think with Stay Alive, they tried to get a cast that I think would have been appealing at the time for a lot of teenagers specifically. 
hence the PG-13 rating. And it just fell on its face very hard. Yeah, well, I'm, I can tell, like, if you look at the kind of list of cuts and, like, things that they changed between the R-rated version and the PG-13 version, like, they were clearly shooting for an R-rated version. It was very common at the time in the DVD market to do that. Yeah. Specifically for, you know, home video releases because it would sell better. DVDs were on fire at the time. People wanted them. The PG-13 version has to cut so many things, though, that that make the movie like incoherent. Like there's Mm -hmm. a gag in the movie where Jimmy Simpson's character is seemingly dead slumped over on his laptop, but then the angle reveals that he's actually taking a rip off of a huge bong in the PG 13 version. They take out him breathing out the cloud of smoke and they also zoom in on the shot where he's holding the bong as to put the bong mostly out of frame. Got it. And it's on and, and the shot lasts a shorter period of time. And it's like, what what were they doing? Like <laughs> this was like design like designed poorly from the start to be appealing. I I, I want to agree with Deanna in that I would love to see a a good version of this premise because on paper if you die in the game, you die for real, could be good. Sure. It sounds funny, but there is definitely, I think even today with video game culture becoming even more and more ubiquitous in everybody's lives, I think there's a there would be a really good way to execute that premise. I can't recommend Stay Alive, but it is remarkable in its ineptitude. <laughs> like it, its reputation actually doesn't do it justice. Like, this is so baffling to me. Pure, I mean, purely on the filmmaking end of things, how this thing is edited and put together is so bizarre to me that it demands recognition of some sort. Yeah, that's like the only notable thing about it for me is like, if you want to learn how not to deliver information, particularly exposition in a movie, like this is a fairly good example, but you at least have to know what you're looking out for. Yes. But like, I agree with Drew, like the basic concept of like a video game that kills you, that's ripe with potential. And it actually could hit hint at some really interesting things thematically. But, like, there's nothing of thematic interest in this movie. It's like, why do they have to complicate this really simple idea with things like, well, it's not just a killer video game. It's the ghost of Elizabeth Bathory, who's not actually Elizabeth Bathory. She's a headmistress of a school in the early 1800s in Louisiana. Uh, What does that have to say about anything? Absolutely nothing. It's just, it's noise. It's chaos. Yeah, to to sum things up, I do think this is what what Travis and I have come to call a hat mountain of a movie. Okay. um, In in which the the term a hat on a hat in writing is when you have, particularly in comedy writing, when you have a joke. And then you put something, you add something to that joke that you just don't need. It's it's excessive. You don't need to wear a hat on top of a hat. And so this movie is what we describe as a hat mountain, where it's just there are so many hats that I'm suffocated under the weight of them. It's unfortunate because there is a good premise. This is a good cast. Mm-hmm. None of them are given the chance to ever showcase that. Maybe Alice Creek, but you know she just can't not be pleasant to watch <laughs> i missed the wee but otherwise stay i mean especially you know since we're doing haunted media for the month on genre vision it i want like i want a good haunted video game movie like because as a piece of media video games have become way more uh commonplace and and frequent in people's lives even 
than they were in, in 2006. And it doesn't have to be a movie about gamer culture, which this is also trying to be. Because everybody plays video games. Everybody plays video games on their mobile devices. Everybody, you know, likes video games. Right. There, there's a way to do this. Stay Alive was not it. I do think it is worth noting, like, I, when we talk about bad movies, which we did on our Patreon pre-show episode with Deanna for this, we talked about watching bad movies can actually teach you more about filmmaking than watching good movies. And I think Stay Alive is the kind of movie that you should watch to learn about filmmaking mm-hmm. because this is a this is a great movie to specifically talk about editing most of all because the editing and the pacing of all of this is the thing that throws me off the most. Yeah. Uh, again, I take full responsibility. This was my fault. I will try and make it up to both to you uh, to both of you at some point in the future. But now we're going to head over to the shelf where we pick some movies that might act as a good pairing or substitute for our main topic. And we encourage you, listener, to go to genrevision.com and you can comment on the post for this episode with your own shelf picks. And we will feature them in next week's episode. And Deanna, as our guest, I'm going to go to you first. What are you going to pull off the shelf for Stay Alive? You know, I almost debated not picking this since the three of us had so much trouble trying to watch it. But if you're (laughs) up for finding it, The Mangler 2 is not super similar to this, but you still have basically someone coming out of a computer program and sort of coming to life, haunting the people left at this school. And while it's not a video game, it is more like a haunted computer virus, I guess. That's media. That counts. Yeah. No, The Mangler 2 itself might be a piece of haunted media, though. That movie's real bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's so hard to find. Yeah. Technically, you could buy the DVD if you were feeling very adventurous. If you're a Lance Henriksen completist. Yes. <laughs> and uh, but, but again, more so than The Mangler 2, everybody should go listen to the Chat Cemetery episode of The Mangler 2, which is much more enjoyable than the movie, I think. <laughs> I think so, too. Uh, Travis, what are you going to pull off the shelf for Stay Alive? Uh, there is an episode of Black Mirror called Playtest that I think is probably the best version of this concept. It's not mm. supernatural, obviously, because it's Black Mirror and it's a pure techno horror. But, you know, the whole idea of this character being placed in this, like, spooky mansion video game and it actually being quite scary is is pretty well executed in Playtest. Um, it's a good episode. It is a good episode. It's actually directed by Dan Trachtenberg, who directed 10 Cloverfield Lane. And Wyatt Russell, who's, you know, of course, Kurt Russell's kid, like, does a great job. And it's co-stars Wenmi Masaku, who is really awesome on Lovecraft Country. Like, it's a pretty great episode of that show. And the whole haunted video game, you die in the game, you die in real life kind of thing is is played with there. It actually, this movie did make me want to watch Playtest again. So um, maybe I'll do that. I don't know. It's a good, good spooky season uh, episode. I have to admit, I never made it past the first episode of Black Mirror for... What I think are understandable reasons, but yeah, totally. But like, you got to understand that first episode of Black Mirror, like there's not much else in the series that's like that. That's totally different from what else the series done. I think you would really like Playtest, actually. Yeah, I. it was just one of those things. I watched that and I was like, oh, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, that's that's a walkout episode. That's like, no, thanks. Uh, that is the a perfect response. Luckily, the rest of the show is not at all like that. No. Yeah. And, and the good thing is I would I would honestly recommend cherry picking episodes from that show okay yeah and and playtest is absolutely 
one to check. You can watch it totally on its own. It's it's a very, very good episode of the show. Um, for my shelf pick, I'm going to go with the killer video game movie we probably should have done because it has got to be better than this. This is Brain Scan uh, from 1994, starring Edward Furlong and Frank Langella. This uh, also written by Andrew Kevin Walker. Uh, did I, I did not remember that. I know I've seen this. I don't remember a whole bunch of it because I did not see it during like formative years. I came to it a lot later, but it was kind of an attempt to do a, a video game Freddy Krueger type thing in which Edward Furlong gets this game and he is able to kill innocent victims in the video game. But then he realizes that when he kills people in the game, they die in real life. Hmm, sound familiar? And the... The character, the Freddy Krueger character that's in this, the trickster, is this kind of weird punk rock looking figure with a bunch of, you know, one liners and stuff. I I can't totally recommend the movie because I don't remember it a whole bunch, but it has to be better than Stay Alive. <laughs> like, it simply has to be. There's no way it's worse, like, or, or even as bad. You say that now. <laughs> I didn't think about this until today when I had to come up with my shelf pick and I'm like, maybe maybe I need to maybe I need to revisit brain scan like cause now I feel I was like well stay alive's the only killer video game movie and then I found I was like oh right there was this and this might be more interesting I'll be interested to loyal listeners um and and uh welcome to geekdom listeners if anybody has seen brain scan please uh, comment in the post and, and let us know your thoughts about it but now we do have to head over to our listener shelf picks from last week's genre vision episode on demons and demons 2 and we got some great shelf picks this week. Y'all are always bringing it. Eric Fuchs went with In the Mouth of Madness, which we contemplated doing for this month, and the novel House of Leaves, which I heartily recommend. Good book. Stephen S. Bella went with The Evil Dead, which we'll be doing later this month on Genre Vision. Loyal listener JT went with Waxwork, which we did an episode of Waxwork versus House uh, back in the day. Go check that out. Fun episode. And our last shelf picks were from Mr. Milksteak, who went with Hellraiser, which I think, did, did you watch Hellraiser for the first time this year, Deanna? It was last year. I believe that was an episode of Welcome to Geekdom's last horror month for October. Hellraiser is a tough movie to recommend, but yeah. <laughs> it's 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 a classic. Uh, and also, uh, Mr. Milksteak went with Pontypool, which I know is one of Travis's favorite deep cuts. Yeah, that's a great flick. Um, I liked it quite a lot, too. Travis was the one who got me to watch it. Um, a good flick. But yeah, as always, thank you for shelf picks. And let's all do some currently consuming. Nom, 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 nom. This is the section of the show where we just kind of talk about some something that we consumed over the week. And Deanna, what have you consumed recently? I made the possibly terrible decision to start Lost <laughs> yesterday. I watched the first four episodes. So the pilot was a two-parter, and then I watched the two after that. And... It's something that I knew that I would recognize a lot of people in the show simply because I had w watched a lot of network television. You know, three of the people, I believe, ended up in Hawaii Five O, likely because they were already mm -hmm. in Hawaii filming Lost. Daniel Day Kim. Yep. A lot of the same production team. Yeah. And I know a lot of my friends have watched and loved Lost, but it was just one of those shows I never really knew exactly what it was about. I knew it was like a stranded on an island kind of thing. And I just never felt the need to go watch it. But I had a group of friends who were like, you really need to watch it. I was like, okay, you guys told me to watch Parks and Rec and Lost. And they're all like eight 
800 episodes long, so mm. <laughs> pick one, and I will watch that one first. So they decided on Lost, and I probably have, what, about 116 episodes to go now? So this will be my currently consuming for a while. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I, I mean, I am I am going to be so fascinated to hear your opinions on Lost as somebody who's coming to it, you know, totally fresh. As as far as any you you have you been spoiled on anything particularly huge in the show that you know of? I have no idea. I know nothing about the show. Great, <laughs> perfect. Yeah, I I am going to be on pins and needles about because because I have extremely mixed feelings about Lost. Okay. Um, D- Drew Drew and I were like 17 and 18 when the show first started. And I remember starting college. Like it was the first time I, I had, you know, so much more control over how I spent my time and like what I watched and things like that. Right. Not that I was particularly restricted at home, but I didn't really have any television shows that I ever considered appointment viewing until I saw the season two premiere of Lost. And then all my roommates and I in college, we we pitched in on the season one on DVD and we binged that sucker like crazy. So, I mean, and Deanna, you're a, a little bit younger than us, not much, but like at the time you probably would have been just young enough to like have missed the Lost culture wave. Probably. So I, I think it'd be really fascinating <laughs> monitoring your reactions to this because it, it's, it's a wacky show that was in some ways kind of the last of its kind. Yeah, it, it's it's a very uh, transitionary show yeah. for prestige television and and network television, and it's I mean there's a lot of things that lost just paved the way for, and it was very important. But I will be fat. I mean, because I over the years have continued to be like, should I revisit Lost? And every time I I never take the plunge. <laughs> so now that you're doing it, I might vicariously get that get get that itch scratched. Yeah, yeah, because some of my friends are trying to rewatch it with me. And what we're actually going to do is a few of us are going to do a podcast after every season. So what <laughs> I, was I just did about to, just, to say, like, it's time for you to create a podcast called Deanna Gets Lost. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need a third podcast, Travis. I think I'm OK, but we are going to do episodes for every season. So six episodes overall. And I think because I'm checking it out from the library, the DVD box sets, I basically have two weeks roughly to watch each season. So, you know, maybe I'll do one a month for the next six months. I don't know yet because that's a lot of loss to take in. Uh And if anyone else is also interested in watching it as I go through it, like some of my friends are doing, I don't want to expect everyone to watch it at the pace that I'm watching it at because a lost season every two weeks is quite a bit. Uh, I'm I cannot wait. I'm so I'm so ecstatic to hear your opinions on that show. Um, well, Tra- Travis, what's been on your plate? Oh, uh, speaking of video games, I've been playing a new one called Hades. Now, it's if, for a lot of people, this isn't new because it's been early. It's been in early access for some time. So people have been playing it for a long time, but it just hit version 1.0, which is like the official release. And so I bought it on Steam for 25 bucks. I've been playing it on my Mac and it's really good. Um, and it's not the kind of game I normally play. This is a top down action game that is a what they call a roguelike. And I, I'm, I'm not terribly familiar with what all that means. But the whole idea of the game is you play the son of Hades. It's a Greek mythology game and you're trying to escape hell. Every time you try to escape hell, uh, you may die. And in fact, it's very likely that you will die because the game is extraordinarily difficult. But the whole idea is when you die, you end up back at the start 
And that sounds really frustrating and sounds like there would be not enough progression to be satisfying, but there is. And the game accomplishes it in some really clever ways. Yeah, I know I know that's a staple because I can't remember the specific term that or, or game that wrote it's it's like rogue legacy or rogue dungeon or something that 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 the term roguelike comes from sure. but that was the entire thing it was like hey you're gonna go through and you're gonna beat stuff and if you die you lose everything and you have to you know kick back to the beginning i d- i may have played a type a game that is similar to that but i can't say that i've i've played one with any certainty um but but you've been sharing screen caps from the game. This is from the same people who made Bastion and Transistor, which are all just like gorgeous artwork in those games. Gorgeous artwork and incredible sound design and awesome music. The music for those games is all composed by a guy named Darren Korb, and he's incredible. Uh, I love his music. And so the game has a really funky art style and an interesting sense of humor. And when you die, you don't lose everything. You actually retain all of the things that you've gained on your journey, and then you have access to them on your next run, Mm. um, which is how the game progresses. But there's an element of randomization to every single run that you have. You're given an assortment of weapons to choose from at the beginning. You pick one weapon, and that's the only weapon you get on your run. But every room you enter gives you the opportunity to upgrade the way your weapon works and the way you attack. So it's it's really unique how all this is handled. And maybe there are other games that are similar to this, but this is kind of a first for me, and I'm I'm really enjoying it. So um, that's all I got. Uh, Drew, what have you been consuming? What's been on your plate? Uh, real quick, I, for work purposes, had to watch and review the new Adam Sandler film, Hubie Halloween. As somebody who, I, you know, I... I I have not kept up as far as watching Adam Sandler comedies for I don't know how many years now, but I've kind of tried to stay aware of his career path because I find him to be a very fascinating uh, persona and somebody who I, I genuinely enjoyed in, in his younger years and in his uh, kind of first attempts at headlining movies and stuff and like Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore, The Waterboy, all that stuff. And the trajectory that's been so interesting to me with Adam Sandler is at some point, the characters that he became famous for playing, he stopped playing. And this goes all the way back to his Saturday Night Live days where, you know, he was Opera Man and Canteen Boy. And he was all these people with weird voices. And he he was a weirdo. Like his characters were always weirdos. And at some point he abandoned that, you know, after he kind of found success. And the characters he played in movies were all just kind of like lazy, jaded jerks. And and I remember having to see the movie Pixels. And there was a moment in Pixels where his character comes into a room and there's just a table full of like government types. And he just one by one systematically points out some flaw about them for comedic effect. Where he's just like, your toupee looks like, you know, terrible. That mole is awful. You should get it removed and all this stuff. And it, it was such a like cruel flip of like, you're you're making fun of the kind of characters that made you who you are. And Hubie Halloween is kind of a refreshing return to form for Sandler in that regard. Because he's playing one of those characters again. He's playing a character that is a, a social outcast. Everybody in the town of Salem just thinks he's a joke and makes fun of him and, and, you know, plays pranks on him because he's easily scared. And yes, he's doing another funny voice, but that was, again, that was a hallmark of his early career and his characters. 
the movie is still an Adam Sandler comedy and it, it, it is shackled to the faults that come with that. And when I say Adam Sandler comedy, I should say the, the more contemporary modern Adam Sandler comedies that there is not the kind of aggressive absurdism that made stuff like Billy Madison actually pretty funny. Um, th- this still has that kind of milk toasty approach to like all, you know, four quadrant humor, but it's a sweet movie. And I can't remember the last time that Adam Sandler made a genuinely sweet, like sweet hearted, doofy movie. Um, that alone is kind of like, Hey, uh, okay. And as a Halloween movie, it's, it is very clear that, you know, this is produced under his, his happy Madison productions company. It's very clear that Sandler wanted to make a big Halloween movie, like the, the set decoration and all the shooting that they did in, in Salem and other parts of, of Massachusetts and, and, and even New Hampshire, uh, where I'm at, um, they went all out with the Halloween stuff. There's a really fun drive-in location uh, that, that they did a, a big gag for that's that's really fun. Um, if if this could please signal an upswing, and if, if Adam Sandler's going to keep doing these kinds of movies, I'd rather he do this kind of stuff than the stuff that he became uh, known for. And he has shown throughout his career that he's not oblivious to this stuff. He's aware of the criticisms that people have towards him. And there are times when he's embraced that and even been contentious about it and in kind of enjoyable ways. Um, But I was, I was, I was surprised at how much I didn't hate Hubie Halloween. (laughs) I guess, (laughs) I guess that's the best I can say about it. Um, but you know, it's, it's PG 13. So it's like, yeah, if, if you want like an easy going family comedy, that's still a little wacky and, and raunchy enough, um, you could do a lot worse, especially the, the kind of stuff that has been churned out by Netflix or acquired by Netflix. I just don't want to have little Nikki flashbacks. <laughs> sure. Little Nikki is the, is the, is the nadir of, of that type of Adam Sandler movie. And even little Nikki, even I have certain soft spots for, um, it had a fun soundtrack and it had the first Infinifilm, uh, DVD from new line. So it is true. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want, we'll, we'll link to my review and you can read kind of my, my full thoughts there. But to wrap things up for genre vision, we're going to do our comments of the week. I, I hate to pull this cop out, but it has just been that great. I cannot believe how many responses we got to our demons and demons Two episode, which is incredible. There's a great thread in the comments for that, where it, it eventually the conversation turned to the particular instances of on-screen violence that really get to you. That are just like, oh, if you do that, like, like, for example, I'll just pull one. Uh, Steven Espel said that my thing is needles going into skin, but Achilles heels being damaged. Well, he says some other stuff that I won't say here, but <laughs> I, I, I wanted to pose this, especially because I don't think we've ever had this conversation with you, Deanna. Do you have like a particular thing in in movies where if it's a violence, like a particular body part or something that just is like that's you're like, nope, don't want to see that. Not specifically but i think the one thing in recent years at least that has freaked me out the most is the degloving scene in gerald's game oh yeah it's rough that is rough well i was gonna that that i think kind of feeds into you track because you have a particular hand thing 
yeah, I don't like hands getting injured. That is that that's a particular fear of mine is that my hands will get injured and I'll never be able to use my hands again. I use them for I, li- I use them for everything, Drew. <laughs> oh yeah, well that that was uh, I, I that exact that at least has like a, a clear thematic resonance where it's like oh yeah that makes sense. My thing is throats being slit. I just and, and it and it's a I, I've seen it. I think the reason is that. I've seen it done so many times in movies and television, and it's very easy to see like a bad version of it where it's like, yeah, it's a really easily executed effect. But when it's effective, it's like, oh, oh, like, oh, I just thought about it. My like shoulders tensed up like to protect my neck, protect your neck. You know, some people have uh, irrational fears that that for whatever reason, just like really dig deep into their psyche. Like, yep. some people cannot do shark attack movies, whereas Drew and I are like, yeah. <laughs> Bring, oh, bring that's it that's on. a plus. It's like I would prefer to watch Shark Attack movies. Yeah, um. <laughs> exactly. Do you have something like that, Deanna? Where like you're, you're just like this, this <laughs> watching this pleases me greatly. <laughs> I mean, as someone who enjoys true crime a lot, I feel like that is that. You know, like true crime documentaries, reading the books. It's like I enjoy those things, especially recently. What was it? I'll be gone in the dark. Oh yeah, great book. I didn't see the documentary yet, but it was a great book. Both are very good, and I feel weird enjoying those things. There, I mean, there's a level of kind of fascination with it because it's true that that I feel is different than than fiction. Yeah. Like it, it definitely scratches a different inch. Like I listen to a bunch of true crime podcasts. Um, I I live with a true crime addict, so I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. What's even more specific is like women love true crime in this really specific way. Like there's a whole market of true crime stuff specifically designed for women audiences. Yeah. And it, I would like to see something that kind of delved into that particular phenomenon. That could be fun. But now we're just talking because we enjoy each other's company. Uh, <laughs> but I believe Deanna was the one who propose this crossover episode to begin with. So I want to thank you, Deanna, because this was an absolute great idea and and a joy to do. Yeah, this was fun. And Travis is going to kindly edit for me this week. So, you know, that that helps me. (laughs) You bet. (laughs) So we thank Travis, too. Um, Yeah. And and check out all of our stuff. You you know, if you're listening on GenreVision, go check out Chat Cemetery and Welcome to Geekdom. They're awesome. And if uh, if you're listening to us on those, hey, come check us out at GenreVision. Yes. Links in the show notes for everything. And uh, we're we're not going to do our usual sign off because this is a, a, a different special episode. So instead, we'll just say thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye, guys. All right, everyone. That does it for this episode of Welcome to Geekdom. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so through our Patreon. You can sign up for a dollar a month. That'll get you a thank you on the show. $2 a month, you get to pick a topic that myself and a guest will discuss on the show. For $5 a month, you can join the Welcome to Geekdom Slack group, where you can talk to myself and various guests who have been on the show. If you want to follow us on socials, you can do so at Geekdom Pod on Twitter and at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.